This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com galaxy and entering the promo code GALAXY. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 196 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Glenn Weldon. He's a panelist on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. He reviews books and comics for NPR.org, and he's also the author of the book Superman, the unauthorized biography. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book, The Caped Crusade, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture. And today's show is brought to you by Casper. If you need a new mattress, just pop on over to casper.com galaxy and order today. You won't have to visit a showroom or haggle over prices, and the mattress will be shipped to you in a box that's the size of a mini-fridge. Then all you have to do is open up the box and watch as the mattress naturally expands to its full size. If you listen to episode 189, you might remember that back in February I had just received my very own Casper mattress, and that I had used it to replace the extremely uncomfortable mattress in my guest bedroom in the hopes that that might entice some friends to come visit me sometime. Well, no one ever showed up, but that's okay because that just means more Casper mattress for me. I moved the Casper mattress into my bedroom, and I've been sleeping on it for the past few weeks, and honestly, I've been so comfortable that I've barely even noticed the aching, aching loneliness. Anyway, today's show is all about Batman and Superman, but those aren't the only superheroes around. There are tons of other superheroes out there like Spider-Man, Iron Man, Captain America, and Zach Chapman, who bought a Casper mattress last year after hearing about it on the show. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy wouldn't be possible without the support of our sponsors, and obviously when people buy stuff from our sponsors, that helps us to keep our current sponsors and also to line up new ones. So if you need a new mattress and you really want to help us out, just head on over to casper.com galaxy. It's $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size one. The mattress will arrive in the mail, and you have 100 days to try it out. And if you decide not to keep it, Casper will pick it up for free and give you a full refund. Terms and conditions apply. So remember, the address is casper.com galaxy, and you should also use the promo code GALAXY, which will get you a $50 discount, and also let Casper know that you heard about them here. All right, and so now here's our interview with Glenn Weldon. All right, so we're here with Glenn Welton. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Nick. It's great to be here. Okay, so first of all, I have to ask, what did you think of Batman versus Superman? Uh, see, I was going to see the press screening, but that happened to coincide with uh, the book launch. So I haven't seen it yet. Going to go see it uh, tomorrow at uh, 1 o'clock. So um, I, I have seen plenty of the trailers, and, uh, you know, as I said before, I live in hope, uh, but I rent in Please Don't Suck. Yeah, I, you, you've seen the reviews, I take it, though. Yes, I have. I tried not to read them because I don't want spoilers, but I'm not too concerned about the story being spoiled because this is Zack Snyder we're talking about, and story isn't really his thing. Yeah, so not give too much, not to give anything away, but if you've seen the trailer, you basically know everything that happened in the movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, seeing Doomsday did not uh, predispose me particularly well to the film. But again, I'm going in... I'm going in with open Pollyanna kind of eyes. Anything can happen. Who knows? <laughs> okay, well, I guess if you've seen the trailer, you know, though, that they uh, have presented Batman as a very 
violent kind of Batman. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about what, how do you feel about this this violent Batman? Uh, violent, I guess, is okay. Uh, I've seen some reports that he kills folk, or at least uh, allows folks to be killed, and that's a kind of a betrayal of of who I think the character is and who uh, he has been uh, from the beginning. I mean, technically, sure. When he in his very first year, he killed lots of folk. He killed like something like twenty four men, uh, a brace of werewolves, two vampires. And a few giant mutants, but uh, but then as soon as Robin comes along, and Robin comes along within a year, uh, because they were a little getting worried about some of the some of the violence in the in the in the comic, and so they they introduced the kid to lighten the tone, to give kids somebody to identify with, and also because they wanted to double down on his the fact that he's a detective, and so that if you have a Holmes, you need a Watson, an audience surrogate, so that he can kind of work through his deductive reasoning. Uh, and this was also really before thought balloons came along and before um, before there was the internal monologue was a thing, like the narration. So for about a year, if uh, Bill Finger wanted to have him reason or, or, or to make us privy to his thoughts, he had to have him talk to himself. And that just got a little weird. So they introduced Robin. Uh, tone lightens up in a big way. Um, I think, and this is kind of the, the thesis of the book, is... Uh, if you just see the grim, gritty badass, which is certainly the the fanboy idealized version of Batman, the, the one that they believe is the true version of Batman, that all other iterations of the character that have existed through the years are somehow wrong, debased, and sort of gay, um, then you are then you're missing what's at the heart of the character. Because at the end of the day, when his parents get killed, uh, he doesn't go on an act. He doesn't go seeking vengeance. Vengeance is not what superheroes do. Vengeance is what action movie heroes do, but it's not what superheroes do. So he decides he's going to dedicate his life to being of use to others, to ensuring that he will, um, that what happened to him will never happen to anybody else. He dedicates himself to this idea of never again. Uh, and that means not only not killing the guy who, who uh, killed his parents, but also not killing anybody. Um, the fact that uh, superheroes are superheroes means that they exist within certain genre constraints. And a lot of creativity can happen within those genre constraints, but you have to adhere to them. Um, when you take a superhero out of a comic book, you, trend, you change them. When you take Batman out of a comic book, you change them. And, you, you, and what has happened to Batman over the years is that he's been sort of stuck in action movie uh, conventions. The action movie convention is that there's rising action, there's a big stupid explosion kind of thing that happens at the end, there's a love interest... Um, and especially if we want to talk about the, the 1989 Batman film, the Tim Burton Batman film, uh, that was a fight between the screenwriter, Sam Hamm, who wanted, uh, who was an inveterate geek and, and knew the Batman lore very well, and the producers who wanted a conventional action movie because they were risking a lot of money, uh, an unprecedented amount of money on something that they didn't completely trust. So... Uh, they made it so that uh, the Joker was the dude who killed his parents. It's very tidy. It wraps things up in a nice little bow, and it's very similar to what you would get in a uh, in a, in a typical like Charles Bronson movie, like the revenge storyline. But in a very important way, Batman isn't about revenge. Uh, he is about uh, he, he's about justice. He's about seeking. Um, uh, he, he is about dedicating himself to uh, preventing what happened to him happening to anybody else. So it's not a vendetta, it's a crusade. And that's a long way of getting to the fact that I think people like Zack Snyder see 
the badass characterization of Batman and think that they want it to look great. And that means not getting to the heart of the character. Well, you mentioned Bill Finger, who the book actually is dedicated to. Could you just say a bit about who that is and why you dedicated the book to him? Uh, Bill Finger was the co-creator of Batman, the man who brought to the table pretty much everything we know, uh, everything we think of when we think of Batman. Uh, Bob Kane spent most of his life trying to claim sole credit for it. Um, and, in, you know, in fairness to him, that wasn't unusual. Uh, the publishers would deal with one single person, and that person would uh, hire ghost artists, ghost writers. Um, Bob Kane perfected that in a uh, a really disingenuous way, and um, uh, he 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 and Finger co-created the character. Finger, um, Bob Kane came to him and said, "I got this idea for Batman. Look at this guy. Uh, he's he's. We need to make something like Superman. So here's a guy in red long johns with big bat wings. What do you think?" And that was kind of their their modus operandi. They would bounce ideas off each other. Uh, Finger looked at that and said, well, if you're calling him Batman, why is he wearing red? It should be colors of the night. He should have, you know, big ears to make him look like a bat. Uh, if he is uh, actually, you know, uh, what you want him to be, a creature uh, like a bat, a creature of the night, then he should have gloves to uh, so that he doesn't leave fingerprints anywhere. Um, so everything in terms of the pure iconography of the character came from Bill Finger. The name came from Kane. And, uh, and Filger was the writer. Kane was the artist for a very brief period of time before he started ghost, uh, hiring a lot of ghostwriters. So the reason I dedicated the book to Finger is because um, he hasn't gotten his due. Uh, and, you know, until very recently, uh, my friend Mark Tyler Nobleman wrote a great book called uh, Bill Finger, the, the Boy Behind Batman. I don't remember the title offhand. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an all-ages book that really tries to set the record straight. And uh, it's a very... Uh, uh, Mark is a, has done a lot of really good work, uh, which is, you know, it's thanks, I think, in large part to Mark that um, a film like Batman vs. Superman is, now has a credit for Bill Finger, which, you know, depending on how the film turns out, is... <laughs> a loaded <laughs> it's a complicated a complicated idea yeah well it's funny because there's actually an anecdote in the book where bob kane was on a tv show drawing batman and he actually couldn't even really draw batman yeah he hired uh uh i think it was joe giella uh to draw he he went on the show when during the 66 batman craze uh, it was a kid show uh, called Wonderama. Uh, it was local New York television. And uh, between, you know, as, as they would cut to commercial, they'd cut to him drawing Batman on a big uh, easel. And in fact, Joe Giella had drawn the, uh, the, the, the Batman in blue ink that didn't show up uh, on the camera. And, and Bob would just trace. Bob did a lot of tracing. Um, in fact, uh, many things in the, the very first issue of Detective Comics, many things in many issues of those early issues, uh, were just things he had swiped from uh, Flash Gordon, from Tarzan, from a book called Gangbusters in Action. Uh, he did that a hell of a lot. Um, left on his own devices, he was not particularly great. His, his design, if you want to call it that, owed a lot to... Chester Gould, a lot to this kind of really boxy look of the Dick Tracy comic. Uh, and in fairness to him, he wasn't de dedicating himself to art. He was churning content out. That's what they all did back then. 
They were just trying to make money. They made money per page, and all they wanted to do was was turn the content out. And Finger, um, even that very first Batman story was a complete lift from an earlier Shadow story. I mean, plot point for plot point. Uh, so um, you know, I, I I I do rake Kane over the coals in the book as much as I, I can because I, I I think he deserves a little raking. Um, but uh, you know, it was that's that was the industry back then. The industry was. Uh, a little crooked. And whenever I would think I was being too harsh on Kane, I would go take a look at his tombstone. David, I, I urge you and all your listeners to go take a look at Bob Kane's tombstone, which is this paean to himself and to the fact that uh, God touched him and helped him create the, the, the character of Batman who endures yada, 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 without a <laughs> single mention of Bill Finger, without a single mention of anything. It's, it's, uh, that, would, that would give me a little fuel to carry on after that. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that was something that struck me reading the book was not just how much of the Batman concept was swiped from other things, but then also how long and how many people it took to form so many of the ingredients that we think of as being just essential to Batman's identity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it was a year of basically R&D. I mean, uh, because he was so indebted to the Shadow, uh, a lot, a lot of vigilante characters in that time were were very dead to the shadow, and it makes sense because again, the the shadow was pretty much the very first multimedia sensation, and so um, so people wanted to imitate it. I mean, he had transcended the pulp novels. He'd had a radio show. He had uh, comics. Um, so people wanted to imitate that. And Batman um, was not even the only bat themed ripoff of the shadow. There were at least two others that I found, and and possibly more, uh, because uh, because this is how. In the early days of superheroes, it was just imitation. It was just that rank imitation that, that kind of was the fuel for everything. So he started off as a ripoff of the Shadow. It takes him a while to accrete other aspects. Like, it takes him a while to become known as a martial artist, as a detective, as a, uh, as a, as a socialite. I mean, the, the fact that, that Bruce Wayne is rich is, is a huge part of it, but that doesn't necessarily really register in the comics for a while. And then finally, it's uh, getting Robin on board. I mean, basically, I would argue that Robin is half the story. Uh, Batman's role as a protector is key to his character because, again, he is trying to protect others from what happened to himself. And uh, the, when we see him in a mentor role, that really lands in a way, in a very practical way. Right. Well, you mentioned how wealthy Batman is. And you talk about, too, how when he started out, he would defend wealthy people from getting robbed, basically. And as the character developed, he became more and more uh, an enemy of the, the wealthy establishment. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, Superman started off as a guy thumbing his nose at the status quo. And Batman, in a very strange way, started off as somebody who was protecting uh, wealthy businessmen and rich socialites. And it takes him a while to go after a criminal who is actually uh, attacking anybody but the very upper echelons of society. Uh, that, is, that was odd to me, because that seemed a complete inversion. Um, but it's... And then soon after that, he becomes a duly deputized uh, agent of the law, uh, reinforcing the status quo, reinforcing uh, things. And it really takes until 1985, in, in a really important way, for somebody like Frank Miller to come along and say, this guy only works if the system is corrupt and he is fighting against it. 
Uh, Batman only works in a, in a corrupt city. Not and but uh, actually, now that I think about, it, there were there were notes of that in the Denny O'Neill Batman. Denny O'Neill kind of re- rebooted Batman in 1970 because he was creating uh, the antithesis of the Adam West Batman, the 1966 television series, uh, because that had been so popular. And in a sense, that's actually now that I think about it, that's when the notion that uh, uh, Bruce Wayne would become a philanthropist who would help crime victims really enters the text and it's also when uh when batman decides he's going to go after uh the fat cats the uh, corrupt uh upper echelons of uh, of gotham city which again was not really part of the history of the character up until that moment well so you mentioned that some people thought that that batman seemed kind of gay and you have this quote from Grant Morris in the book where you say, gayness is built into Batman. There's just no denying it. Obviously, as a fictional character, he's intended to be heterosexual, but the basis of the whole concept is utterly gay. Uh, what do you think about that that quote? Well, uh, when I did the audiobook, I did my best. And when I mean that, when I say best, I mean my worst Grant Morrison impression. Batman is utterly gay, I would do. It was a lot, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Um, look at... Uh, Anytime you put two dudes together and they live together and they work together, uh, shipping is going to happen. Uh, it happened with Watson and, and Holmes. It's going to happen with Batman and Robin. And whether or not it's intentional, and I firmly believe uh, that in the case of Batman and Robin, uh, it is not intended for them to be read as gay. Uh, the point I make in the book is that doesn't matter. Because when you... Uh, Especially when this came about in 1940, uh, gay people had no representation in any kind of media, in any kind of meaningful way. And that doesn't matter to straight people. Straight people um, see themselves reflected in media all the time, such that it doesn't even register to them that they're seeing representations of themselves. They're just comics. They're just movies. They're just books. Uh, gay people, especially at this era, Never saw anything like the their their desires, their lives, their the the, the lives they were living, um, and not only that, but they would look at media and see a world in which not only did they not see themselves, they, but a world that asserted that they did not exist. And so, uh, when that happens, gay people like me, we look deeper. We make connections that are not intended, but especially in something like comics, which are a visual medium which are uh, where, where the subtext can really get going, because it doesn't matter what the text is telling you. Uh, if you see an image of Batman putting his hand tenderly on a young man's shoulder, uh, then, and, you, and you don't have any other, um, any other confirmation, any other support in any other medium, uh, that's where you start to invest. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's not fair. It's not intended. Uh, and it's, you know, and what, uh, people like Frederick Wortham did, Frederick Wortham was a, uh, anti-comics crusader in the forties and fifties. He would, uh, take panels out of context. Uh, when, for example, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson were on a rowboat in the middle of a pond in Gotham city in the middle of the night, just the two of them under the moonlight, or when they would wake up in bed together. And the text would tell us it was a typical morning on, in Wayne Manor. Um, that's kind of that's the kind of stuff that would register with, um, well, what Wortham thought was that that's those kind of images. And he went on and on about the uh, the fact that they had in Wayne Manor, I know, uh, beautiful flowers and large faces. Um, he would say, well, that that 
a kid looking at that in an era when homosexuality was the great taboo, which it certainly was in the 50s, um, a kid looking at that might start to feel like they might be gay. They would, it might create uh, uh, fears in a young kid's mind uh, of, of feelings of guilt and shame and, uh, and sexual maladjustment. And uh, as I say in the book, uh, dude had a point. He just didn't realize that he, it, was, it wasn't the point that he thought he had. Because no straight kid is going to look at Batman and Robin, even if Batman and Robin wake up to bed together, they wake up in bed together and feel like there's something going on there. But every gay kid will. And so <laughs> what, he, what he thought was going to happen to all youth, the youth of America was actually happening um, with gay kids. And I, I can say this from some authority. I mean, there, there is something about uh, Batman and Robin. And it's interesting to me that it's really about Batman and Robin. Like, you, you put these two, two, anybody, two dudes together, and there's some kind of uh, frisson. There's something there. I mean, yes, superheroes, especially superheroes like Batman, have things sort of factory pre-installed that, that just uh, have resonances. Again, it's not how subtext works, right? Like, subtext is a thing that, that arises that we find, um, so the fact that B Batman is afraid of his secret identity being exposed, that has a certain resonance with, with gay guys. Uh, the fact that he's, you know, jacked, <laughs> let's not discount that. The fact that there's this idea of the cloak of night, let's, let's, let's put in the fact that there's, uh, you know, this homosocial friendship that, uh, he just hangs out with. It, it really, really seems like he wants to hang out with Robin a lot more than he does Vicky Vale. Uh, all this stuff matters. Uh, it doesn't mean that anybody intended them to be read as gay, but that does not prevent them from being read as gay. I mean, you talk a lot in the book about how there was a lot of homophobia among Batman fans who uh, expressed that opinion a lot. You quote a lot of them. I mean, just how did that make you feel as a gay kid experiencing that in the from other Batman fans? Well, I mean, you know, uh, homophobia is not a not a surprising thing, uh, and it, uh, it the, how it registers is not. Um, it, it depends. I was actually, you know, I'm a pretty old dude. So when the Schumacher Schumacher films came out, um, and uh, you know, with the nipples and the cod pieces and the Robin, who was basically with his earring and his tank top, you know, basically the rough trade Robin and the leather daddy Batman. When all that stuff came out, um, uh, it, it's hard to miss. And the fulminating, frothing nerd rage that ensued, uh, this feeling of, of personal affrontedness on the part of, uh, on the part of uh, fans, you know, from Harry Knowles on down, just this, how dare they take this, this thing uh, and, and have fun with it. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's part of the deal. I, it did, I didn't take it personally because I thought it was funny. Um, uh, I, but it is because, and, and also to be very honest, before I wrote this book, I didn't really go too deep into, say, the "Bring Me the Head of Joel Schumacher" website. It's just not a place. I, it's not a place I visited in 1998 or whatever it was, uh, or the uh, the anti Schumacher website, which is also a thing. Um, I, I I knew it was out there, but here's the thing that I think is important: um, the 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 fan base back in the early days of the internet was monolithic. Uh, it was a lot of straight white dudes who 
felt like they needed to insist upon their version of Batman as the grim, gritty badass because that's the Frank Miller. That's the you know the that's that's the version that that really uh, sang to them. That that really that they wanted to assert. So the the version that the that the hardcore fan base wanted was the grim, gritty badass, and this was seen as an affront, a debasement. Um, if these films, the Schumacher films, had come out today, that contingency would still be just as vitriolic, just as hate-filled, just as homophobic, but they would be one voice among many. Uh, the fan base improves, and comics improve, and any medium improves when it becomes less monolithic, when it's not just one viewpoint being asserted loudly and insistently. Incessantly. Um, so the fact that now we have things like cosplay and fanfic, where we're bringing women into the mix, and fanfic, in a really important way, I think, changes how we react to these characters, how we interact with these characters. At one point, for, for, most, of, uh, for, for most of the time the comics have been around, the, the information has flowed downhill. And we take these stories, we nerds take these stories, and we sort them through, we pick them over, uh, like we're with a kind of a Talmudic intensity, right? Like we're kind of um, debating minor points of arcana and who could, whose butt could get kicked by whom. And oh, and the fact that uh, Batman has a contingency plan was, was pointed out in the Tower of Babel by Mark Wade and blah, 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 like that stuff. That's the way we got used to um, interacting with this text. Uh, fanfic basically goes back and interrogates all of the, all of that information and finds new relationships. And yes, sometimes they're sexual relationships, but, but, uh, has a, a, a less reverent feeling for, for these characters and for these storylines and, and for this, I, the whole idea. And I think that's inevitably a good thing. I think the more we do that, the more uh, queer folk get into the mix, the more women, the more people of color, uh, the, the less we make these characters, these situations, this idea of the superhero, this, this only one thing, that there can only be one way, um, I think we just improve both the comics and the fans. Yeah, I felt kind of bad reading your book because I really hated the Joel Schumacher films. And then after I read your book, I was like, man, now I feel like a bad person. Oh, David, you can hate those films. You, you can perfectly, you can perfectly, they are, they are, uh, can I say shit shows? Is shit shows yeah, a thing yeah, I can yeah. say? They are, they are certainly shit shows. Um, um, but, uh, you know, they're not shit shows because of nipples. They're shit shows <laughs> because, because the dude couldn't tell a story to save his life. And he took a character that I love, like Mr. Freeze, uh, who has such pathos and such, has such potential. Because he's not an evil guy. He doesn't want to take over the world. He's it, like, that's the kind of villain that Batman it really works well with. Uh, and turned him into Mr. F and turned him into Arnold Schwarzenegger because he thought, you know, well, I don't know what he thought. Uh, no, few can tell what he thought. So <laughs> you should not feel bad because you think those movies are no good. Uh, but the, what, what you, the notion that you can't have any fun. <laughs> you cannot, you have to take these things as sacrosanct. You have to take these ideas as, uh, we must all take this stuff compl completely seriously. And by the way, you can take something seriously and still have fun. Seriously does not mean dour. Seriously just means let's, let's investigate uh, the, the, the real ramifications of this. Okay, so if, if we assert X and Y is true, then what does Z look like? That's all taking something seriously means. 
But uh, because of the grim and gritty movement and uh, this, the way that comics in the 90s uh, decided that they would make everything extreme, and the only way we could make anybody actually care about any of this stuff is to up the violence, up the stakes, uh, up the sort of operatic um, ridiculousness of, the, of this. Uh, that's 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 what what I'm trying to push back against. Yeah, I mean, one line I thought was really interesting is that you, you quote Frank Miller as talking about how how Batman isn't gay, that he doesn't really have a sex life because all he does is cri- fight crime. That's sort of the outlet for everything that he is. And yeah, well, so, yeah, yeah. Miller, Miller's Batman is a sociopath. I mean, that that was something he added. I mean, O'Neill back in 1970 made him an obsessed loner, and that was something that was brand new. I mean, taking taking a, a concept from the world of psychoanalysis and, frankly, pop psychology because it was it was in the 70s, and grafting it on top of this character who had never who had up to this point hadn't had a discernible personality. Uh, none of them had. <laughs> none of them, at least on the DC side, none of them had had personalities. The only way you could tell them apart was by their costumes. Um, that was a that was a big deal, an obsessed loner. And I would argue that, that the, the notion of obsession resonated with his fan base, resonated. Like, they knew. I, I know from obsession. I bag and board my comics. I, <laughs> I, I can... I can, I can tell you um uh, i can cite chapter and verse i can i i have opinions that i only want to tell everybody about this stuff but uh when frank miller came along he uh turned it up to 11 by taking that obsession and turning it into uh crazy time and that makes for an interesting uh story um but i do think uh, people took that a little too seriously they there's a lot of uh, operatic violence in it. There's a lot of very Schwarzeneggerian action movie tropes, but I do think that there is more uh, RoboCop than Rambo. There's more satire in The Dark Knight Returns than a lot of people recognize. Um, and uh, I also think uh, that he is doing something that nobody had really done before. He is telling a story about a superhero with an ending. And stories about superheroes don't often get endings because superheroes exist on the comic book page and they just iterate, iterate, iterate. They, they're, they're so licensed that they can't change. So you deny them the thing that makes a story a story. Like, in, fiction is about rising action, crisis, epiphany, falling action. Uh, that means that the person at the end of the story is not the same person that they were at the beginning. That is, that's the whole point of fiction. That's why you tell stories. And when you deny your character that, like you do in a superhero action, superhero comics, and in uh, soap operas, uh, they are very similar. Uh, then yeah, you don't have you don't have um, you don't have a story. You have adventures, a series of endless adventures. What Miller did was said, okay, I'm gonna. I'm going to tell a story of Batman at the very end of his career, which means I can up the stakes, which means uh, I can actually have have lasting changes. I can make Batman different than he is at the different than he is at the beginning of the story. I can actually do something here, um, and that that is why I say in the book uh, that The Dark Knight Returns really was about engaging. Not the nerds. He knew he had the nerds in his back pocket. He knew the nerds would read it because, hey, it's Batman. Uh, he was really trying to reach the people who hadn't thought about Batman in 15, 20 years. The last time they'd heard of Batman was Pow, Zap, 
you know, holy price, priceless collection of Etruscan snoods, Batman. <laughs> um, and, and, and there's a reason that, because he was, he was, in, he was engaging with the idea of Batman, not the character. Nerds like me love the character. Nerds like me want to tell you about the first time he met Rachel Ghoul and the first time, you know, uh, the, the, that the Scarecrow used X, Y, and Z and the first time that the Arkham Asylum appeared in the, in the Chronicles and blah, 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 blah. We love that stuff. Um, normals will be like, yeah, give me the bullet points. Walk me through it. What's the story? <laughs> and that's what he was reaching for. And that's why Dark Knight Returns became such a phenomenon and went on to inspire well everything basically everything that has followed from batman 1989 the tim burton film to for better or for worse batman versus superman right well you mentioned how how nerds maybe can identify with batman in a way that non-nerds can't you mentioned tim burton i mean there was a quote from him that you have that really struck struck me where he says I always had trouble with the Bruce Wayne in the comic book. I mean, if this guy is so handsome, so rich, and so strong, why the fuck is he putting on a bat suit? Yep. And I feel like I have no trouble understanding that at all. I feel like if you could actually go out and save people's lives and bring justice to the world, that would just be so intoxicating. Uh, you know, it, it baffles me that anyone couldn't understand the appeal of that. Yeah, I know, I know. I mean, that's, that's, but in fairness, Warner Brothers got a lot better. Like, um, the, the change in terms of movie marketing between 1989, when uh, Tim Burton could go out and say in an interview, like something like that, which is, which marks him as, you know, I'm not going to say that Tim Burton isn't a nerd. He is a, he's a, he's an emo gothy geek and more power to him. But he, he doesn't get the appeal of Batman because he doesn't he, he, he doesn't see it. He doesn't. Uh, it, it's completely foreign to him. Uh, this notion of of of, of 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 this kind of obsession of this notion of putting yourself out there, um, because he 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 just sees the the trappings. Uh, he he doesn't understand the core of the character. This 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 altruism. Which is something you gotta have to, you know, you have to, you have to buy. Uh, if you believe in superheroes, or if, if you find them to be any kind of emotionally resonant, you have to uh, believe in this idea of altruism. Even today, in a very cynical age, you still have to think that somebody is going to sacrifice themselves for everyone else. Um, that's a, that's a very powerful notion. But between 1989, when people like, uh, Tim Burton and Joel Schumacher could go on the lecture circuit and just say, crazy things, uh, honest things about why they just didn't buy the whole superhero concept. Between then and the Nolan films, uh, you know, nobody got out of, got, got into a, a, a journalist roundtable um, in the Nolan era without going through the marketing department at Warner Brothers and being told chapter and verse which comics they should cite, being told that they should tell everybody that they are longtime fans of Batman, uh, because they learned, because there was such a backlash against um, some, you know, indelicate things, some uh, not particularly thought through, uh, not particularly dutiful. Burton and Schumacher didn't pay dutiful obeisance to the notion of of the comics, uh, so that changed in the Nolan era because they knew they knew it had to. Right, because I, I don't even feel like I started out insisting that directors be fans of the comics or anything. You know, I, I remember I used to read interviews with directors all the time where they would say, well, I'm not really a fan of this, but 
that gives me an interesting perspective that I bring, and I'm going to make it different. And then their movies were always terrible. And so it was like a learned behavior on my part to to say, like, no, the movies are really, they just turn out better when it's somebody like Joss Whedon or somebody who's really in this world and loves this stuff and understands it and cares about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the secret. Um, I, I, I think when you come to this thing, it's, it's kind of what I was saying before, like uh, Tim Burton can come to this character and impose a, a revenge plot. You know, there, there's a reason that it's basically Chekhov's gun for, uh, for action movies. Like there's a reason that why something you introduce in, in act one comes back in act three. It's tidy. It's the kind of storytelling we're used to, frankly, where it's all wrapped up in a little bow. And we, you know, exit the theater, exit the movie house, and we're like, yep, yep, that was great. That was awesome. Um, comic book characters just don't have that kind of uh, truncated, perfect little rising action, falling action life. And so when you make a movie out of a comic book character, you're, you're changing them. You're introducing changes. And the only time I think that that uh, hasn't happened... Um, is because and this kind of picks up on something you said, David. I mean, the only time it hasn't happened is when the people in charge of this transformation of, of this this adapt adaptation from one medium to another, the people in charge of it were such nerds and and knew the character with such depth, and they hired comic book writers to do it. Was Batman the animated series, which, for my money, and you know, this is not a controversial assertion. Pretty much every nerd <laughs> will tell you this uh, takes. Instead of having a director, a producer, a writer come to this character and, and, and lay their shit on top of it and, and just sort of say, okay, well, the, I'm going to tell a story about um, an emo, creepy outsider who's crazy. Or in the case of Nolan, I'm going to tell a story about terrorism. I'm going to tell a story about um, uh, the surveillance state. Putting all stuff on top of this character, which the character may or may not be able to, to handle, the animated series stripped away everything else, and what we saw on screen was as close as we're ever going to get to the essence of the character, because it moves. I mean, it's basically just a, pa a comic book, a well-written comic book, uh, transformed with this kind of easy grace, where we can kind of see things that we only imagine seeing when we're reading the comic. Um, it's, and also, I think it's not a, not a coincidence that the half-hour format of the animated series is very similar to the format of comic book, where, again, you can't change the character. At the end of every story, status quo has to be reasserted, because, again, they can't, you, can't, you can't upend anything. Um, the Joker has to go back to Arkham Asylum. That's just the way it works. But over the course of multiple issues, multiple story arcs, or in the case of the, of the series, multiple seasons, characterizations can deepen. We can start to find connections we didn't. You can kind of introduce tonal differences. Like, there can be uh, funnier episodes and darker episodes, and that is about as close as we're ever going to get to the experience of reading uh, Batman in the comics. Right, no, I totally agree with you that the animated series is just absolutely fantastic, and it, it does cue to the thing we were talking about earlier, where Batman doesn't just gun people down, he, you know, uses non-lethal force, and you make the point in the book that, you know, not only is this more heroic, but it's more impressive, too. I mean, I feel like if I if there are a bunch of goons standing around and I take them by surprise and I'm in the shadows and I open fire with an automatic rifle or something, even I could probably do that. Right. But to go in there with with your bare hands <laughs> and, and knock them out and tie them up. I mean, it just 
it, it just gives you this unbelievable sense of how driven Batman is and how confident he is and how committed he is to his philosophy. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I've talked about the things like fanfic, things like cosplay. Uh, playing the Arkham City games, the Arkham games, uh, where you can go into a situation and know you can't kill folk, but you have to get to the, you have to, you have to do something. That is incredibly fun <laughs> because you can go and, you know, you can, you can terrify them or you can take them out with a smoke bomb or you can, whatever you can do. That's, you are working within the genre constraints and that game, those series of games, are really good at showing you that there's a lot of shit you can do within genre constraints. And if that was simply uh, you being able to shoot people, I mean, yes, okay, there are, there are lots of games like that. Hitman's a game like that where you can, if you want, just go in and and, uh, and blow people away. Uh, I find those games incredibly dull because I want um, I want a challenge. I want, I want ingenuity. I want I want a feeling of accomplishment. Uh, and, and maybe that's, maybe that ties into it. Maybe when you read, uh, or, or see, uh, uh, a hero figure something out, it's stronger, it's deeper, it, it, it hits you in a different way than if they just go in and blow people away. I mean, we mentioned that the, the t full title of this book is The Caped Crusade, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture. And you say that kind of one of the, uh, defining traits of, of nerd culture is this sentiment of, quote, my thing is the best, your thing is the worst. If you do not love my thing in the same way, to the same degree, and for the exact same reasons that I do, you are doing it wrong. Yeah, well, uh, this is the thing I'm trying to figure out now. I'm actually writing a piece, um, and I'm trying to figure out what comes after nerd culture. What happens when nerd culture becomes culture? Uh, one thing is, we turn on each other. And we, we, we try to uh, become the, the lords of our petty fiefdoms and say, okay, well, I like this thing, but you don't like it in the same way. Uh, I do think the thing that I love about nerds, I think that the thing I love about nerds is that our passion is, uh, is infectious. It is uh, completely sincere. It is not ironic. It's, it came after irony, if you think about it. Like there was an era I, that I grew up in, uh, the 80s and, and, and 90s, of, of this blistering, withering irony. But something comes after that, which is uh, love for a thing. And it doesn't matter what the thing is. Um, this, it matters that you love it in a complete and uh, un, unmediated way. And, and the best thing about nerds is when we want to share our love for, for the thing we love. Um, we, we, we are filled with a desire to interest other people in, in, in it. So we, you know, we write books about, <laughs> about <laughs> why, why we love it so much. Um, that easily increasingly, I think, curdles into uh, exactly the opposite, a feeling of hoarding a thing. You know, what, what's in other realms of public life people term hipsters, which is that, you know, I love this thing before you did. I love this thing in a, in a I, I, love, I love this thing in a smarter way. I love this thing for more nuanced reasons than you do. Um, that is, uh, there is no way to go from there. That is, that is shutting down discourse. That is, because you have to remember, we nerds brought computers from computers used to be at the edges of of culture, right? So they used to be little hobbies we would tinker with, you know. 
But as computers became central to the information economy, the information society, they brought us with them. Uh, and now we and they are at the center. And uh, that means we've what we love, these things that we profess to love so much, are now inescapable. People can't get away from superhero films. They, they're going to be around for a while. Now, they're a genre, well, like a genre like any other, like westerns, like uh, horror films, like slasher films, like, a, like uh, war films. Um, and when I read these hand-wringing uh, accounts from film critics about how, oh, it's the worst thing in the world, these, these terrible films are coming along, and, and we can't get independent films made anymore. And I think to myself, well, that's exactly what people were saying when westerns were a thing, when slasher films were a thing, when it, it's, it, independent films are still being made. These films will cycle through. The wheel will turn. This is a genre that is experiencing a very uh, powerful moment right now. But if uh, uh, DC, I'm going to name names, I mean, if hmm. DC still, still, still believes that the only way to deal with superheroes is to treat them in this dour, grave, humorless way. Um, that, again, monolithic. Monolithic is bad. When all we're getting is that one kind of approach, that one single tone, even though we're dealing with very different characters, you cannot tell a Superman story the way you would tell a Batman story. They're two different people. They're two different characters. They exist in two different worlds. Um, but uh, DC learned, you know, they, they made uh, Superman Returns. It wasn't what they thought it was, should be. They made Batman Begins. It was huge. And they thought, okay, so this is how we tell superhero stories then. That is the wrong lesson to learn. And that was only compounded when they made Green Lantern, and that was terrible for a whole host of reasons. But the lesson they took away from that was, well, then humor doesn't work. We can't tell jokes. It's like, well, that's not the reason. <laughs> that is really not the reason. Marvel, for all their, um, uh, whatever you can say about them, they know that you can make an Ant-Man film, and you can make a, a Deadpool film, and you can make an Avengers film, and they are different because these characters are different. And bringing them together is the thing that is the, is the cool part. Like, like I, when Doctor Strange joins Spider-Man, that's why nerds love it. It's because these people should not exist in the same universe. They should not, like, they're, they're two such different people. So what happens when you bring them together? That's the appeal. Uh, and when you flatten everything by, by making it as grim and dark and swear to me as, as you can, uh, you're telling only one story, which is why people are going to get sick of these of these films. Not because of superheroes, but because of tone. Right. So, I mean, but like when you have situations like you describe in the book where people are sending death threats to movie reviewers if they give a Batman film a less than stellar review, is that just an example of every community has some bad apples in it? Or is that something that should cause nerds to do some soul searching? It should certainly cause nerds to do some soul-searching, because again, all nerds ever want is the acceptance of the mainstream. And once we get it, once this thing that we loved, we prized, but we kept to ourselves at the edges of, of the culture, once we can, we realize that we can talk to Batman, uh, talk about Batman with anybody, that all of a sudden Batman, this thing that we loved by ourselves in the backs of comic book shops, now we can talk about that with anybody. 
All of a sudden, it's a lingua franca. All of a sudden, it's sports. Now, all of a sudden, we understand what sports are. Everybody can talk about sports. You can go into a bar and talk to anybody about sports. I can go into a bar now and talk to anybody about Batman. That is uh, uh, fantastic and terrifying. And it makes it so that we, we, we just don't know what to do with that attention. We don't know what to do with that, that acceptance. Um, so some of us reject it. Some of us try to build smaller fiefdoms within the nerd community. Some of us uh, feel that they want to hold on with a white knuckle grip to that, that feeling of acceptance, of being able to be able to talk about superheroes with anybody. Which means that all of a sudden, when we went from attacking Hollywood because they hired Michael Keaton, how dare you hire Michael Keaton as Batman because he, you know, he, he's got the wrong chin, he's, he's too short, he, he's a comic, comedy actor. We go from that to attacking on behalf of Hollywood, right? Uh, when the critics come, come in and say, um, well, you know, the, the, this uh, Dark Knight Rises is kind of bloated and, and self-important, and death threats happen from that. It's because we feel, and I'm, I'm saying we as a collective we, um, we feel that uh, this this white knuckle grip we have on main on the mainstream is in jeopardy. So we lash out, um, and we lash out in in ways that are racist and sexist and homophobic and and we issue death threats to uh film critics who who give less less than stellar reviews not pans not pans it's very that's that's the thing that fascinates me is anything less than full-throated this is the best thing gets earns a critic uh like how are you a Marvel shill? Are you a, like oh, uh, did Marvel pay you to not like Batman versus Superman? Um, and that is that is fascinating to me because again we don't know what to do when the thing that we love is accepted by everybody. And one thing I'm trying to grapple with now in the same piece I'm writing is you know so there's we are now raising a generation. It seems to me I I, I don't have kids, but I mean it seems to me that raising a generation where a kid could play D&D and, and not have people give them shit about it. A, a kid could play video games and not have kids give, have kids give them shit about it. A kid could like Batman and not have kids give them shit about it. So what happens when you raise a generation that don't feel that reflexive um, resentment that the thing they like causes them to be marked as the other, causes them to be um, persecuted? Uh, do we raise a healthier generation of nerds? Do we even raise nerds anymore? Um, are they nerds? If the thing that I would consider, like, uh, you know, if, if my nephew played d and I'd be like, really? And you tell people about it? You, you say that out loud? You don't just <laughs> do that at home with your friends? You don't ever, ever mention it in school? Because cause that's what I did. Uh, I, I never I never told anybody that I was playing d and in school because I was just so... Um, watchful so so afraid of being of of standing out of being seen i guess so yeah so uh, that's fascinating to me and that's the thing i haven't actually i don't have answers for anything you can any, david any thoughts you have on that score i could totally <laughs> i could totally use because i don't understand what's going on now these kids today with their rock and roll music and their, rubber suits <laughs> and their raccoon coats well well it's interesting because i mean you, you talk in the book a lot about how 
obsessive nerds are and how worked up we get about things, which is certainly true. But I feel like people in general are just kind of obsessive and get really worked up about things. I mean, I, I really see a lot of parallels between superheroes and religions, you know, that you see the same sorts of really acrimonious fights among different uh, sects of a religion as you see among different sorts of comic book geeks or Star Trek versus Star Wars or anything like that. Except with these religious conflicts, people are actually killing each other in large numbers. And so in a way, like, however uh, overworked up nerds seem, I think compared to the general background noise of ordinary human behavior, it actually isn't as bad maybe as it seems. Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, I, I spent some time in academia, and the thing they say about academia is that when the stakes are so low, that's when people really go to, <laughs> go to the mat. I mean, it, because there's, you're right, these, these differences are in many cases microscopic, minuscule. They're slivers that separate one person from another. But I do think we have to kind of own the fact that there's a, a lot of, you know, this Gamergate bullshit, this, this, um, this, uh, hatred of, uh, you know, social justice warriors, whatever you want to call it. it it's coming from a very weird, toxic, um, un a place that doesn't make any sense. That, that, because again, these people are all, we're, we're, we all love things deeply. And as you said, it's, that's what's happening now. I mean, that's what's changed. The, we used to have hobbies. People used to have hobbies. Uh, oh, I, I like, I, I do, uh, Model trains, I collect stamp, whatever. Nowadays, we define ourselves by the things we love deeply. I'm a foodie. I'm a I'm a comic book guy. I'm a I'm a I'm a you know a, a beer monger. Whatever whatever you are, like that's the thing that that that's identity, and maybe that's what's changing. So before, uh, in in school, you know, your interests could mark you as the other. Your interests could mark you like if you professed to love. Doctor Who, you were ostracized. You were like, you were a geek. Um, but now, uh, I, identity, like, is, is the thing, like, is sexual or racial, whatever you could do. That's the thing that is causing people to, uh, attack one another. But at the same time, and again, I'm, I'm just thinking this through with you because I'm trying to figure out this, this piece I'm writing. So I am <laughs> bouncing these ideas off of you. So please react. Uh, but it seems to me like as we decide that I am a foodie, I am a, I am a Batman nerd, I am a, 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 a LARPer, uh, where interest becomes identity, right? Where, where all of a sudden the thing that you love is a huge part of who you are. Um, what does that do to nerd culture? Uh, what does that do to how we uh, interact with each other? These are open questions, David. I, I have no answers. Well, I mean, one, I, I think you're right. But I mean, one thing I want to raise is that, like a lot of these communities we're talking about, like gamers, uh, comic book collectors, things like that, have traditionally been very uh, disproportionately young men. And I think when you have a community that's disproportionately young men, you're always going to have some sort of like a frat house locker room uh, you know, toxic atmosphere like that. And and so I wonder how much of it is really intrinsic to people liking Batman comics. And like, if, you know, if everyone in society of all uh, races and ages, et cetera, were all reading Batman comics uh, at a, approximately the same rate, would we associate this kind of behavior with nerds or not? Or would it just, is it, is it just a, a 
to, to a, a significant extent a function of the demographics. No, that's a good point. I mean, like 12 year old boys are jerks. I mean, that's, that's just what they do. That's, that's who they are. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of, I kind of see your point. There is, uh, but the problem is, and I think I mentioned this in the book is like, so somebody sends a death threat to a woman who's like, yeah, boy, this, this, uh, this chick in this, in this video game is kind of, uh, that's kind of crazy, right? That's, that's not how we actually want to think of women, right? Uh, so somebody sends a death threat to her. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's an eight-year-old boy on his way to soccer practice or if it's a deeply unhinged dude who has access to firearms. Like, you can't tell. It's, it's, it's online. It, all, all these distinctions fall away. I don't know how much of it needs to be policed. I don't know much of it is, uh, is, is you know, how, much, how we can solve that. But it's a, it's a very real thing. And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, I do think that 12, 14-year-old boys need, need to simmer down, need to just <laughs> take, take a chill pill. And, uh, yeah, then maybe there should be like a blocking. <laughs> you can just say, you know what, guys? Maybe, maybe when your brain is a little bit fo- more fully formed, maybe when you're 17, 18, 20, 38, maybe, maybe that's <laughs> when you should be able to go online and, and say what you think about the world. Well, but I mean, there's also this thing that when you have hundreds of millions of people online, how are you going to stop a handful of people from making threats or doing really, really stupid things? That's true. It's true. I, you know, it's the... And the the more noxious behavior rises to the surface, it gets tweeted out, it gets uh, amplified. Um, but that only fuels it. You know, it'd be one thing if if amplifying it made people go, "Oh, geez, I said a dumb thing." What that does is it gives them more power, um, and and that increases. So it's not just one bad apple; it becomes an entire bad orchard. <laughs> Um, well, I did want to ask you about this quote, too, because this is something that I that really struck me is, is you quote Scott Ackerman as saying that we were the first generation without a draft. We didn't need to worry about life and death. So we channeled all that time and energy into obsessing over this TV show or that comic book. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, I want to push back against that. But I mean, I think, there is some, I think there is some truth to that. But I mean, uh, I, I mean, just just the suggestion that people going off and fighting in wars made them subsequently devote a substantially higher amount of time and energy to more worthwhile pursuits, I think is dubious. I mean, I think about in the 50s, you know, a lot of the people went off to war and then they came back and they devoted an incredible amount of their time and energy to racism and McCarthyism and, uh, you know, all sorts of non-worthwhile things. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think he was saying something more about leisure time. I think that's kind of, I mean, I, it raises your point, because in the, in the 50s, of course, there was, you know, what, what, did, what did we do? Drag racing <laughs> and, <laughs> and sock hops, God help us. Um, but yeah, but no, I, I think what that is, is, is a, it's, it's generations who have not had to face their own death, who can, who, who, for whom... Yeah, and I can remember this. Like when I was at um, at, a, at a writing workshop, and you know, uh, I would have to. I would realize I would have to go and, and do laundry. I'd be like, "Well, there's my day. That's my day shot right there. I have to go <laughs> and do do laundry because you, your leisure time expands to fit, to fill the space that you allow it." Right? Um, I think that's kind of what he's more talking about. I, I don't think he's actually thinking that. <laughs> uh, 
that war is ennobling in in the sense that it is um it it gives you a perspective it it makes you face things that uh, a kid who is reading a punisher comic in in their bedroom doesn't necessarily have to face i think that's kind of what more closely what he's talking about there I mean, because I mean, obvi- the reason I want to push back against this, I guess you're in the same boat, right? Is that I've, I've devoted a substantial amount of my time to promoting <laughs> uh, geeky things that I think are incredibly worthwhile. And I mean, you um, you quote in this book this guy. Oh, I didn't write down his first name. Trip. Um, and how ha- Dean Trip. Dean Trip. Yeah. What what a profoundly positive uh, impact Batman comics had on his life. Yeah, Dean Trip is a uh, survivor of childhood sexual abuse. He has written an amazing webcomic called Something Terrible, where Basically, it's about um, it's about many things. It's a really great it's a really great webcomic, but it's about how uh, he saw in Batman somebody who had a terrible blow dealt to them, and decided, and that's that's so important. Uh, he decided that uh, he would be of use. He would transform that experience so that he could help others, uh, and that's that's the secret to these things. I mean. That's how you know that these characters are characters of hope and not rage and not dourness and not um, just a spectacle, pure spectacle. I mean, there's, they speak to the better angels of our nature. They speak to the better parts of ourselves. If they don't, um, the, then you've got a 90s comic. <laughs> if they don't, then, then what are you doing? You, you, you are, you were, you were, it's, it's the difference between action movies and superheroes. And I do think superheroes need to, to not be action movie heroes. I think we need to kind of keep them off to the self, to the side because it's, um, you know, on one level, it's a very hokey notion. It's a, in a cynical world, it's, these are not, uh, these are not the heroes that, uh, would necessarily rise to the surface. Uh, we want realism. This is, this is the thing that we introduced into superhero comics in the, uh, in the, in the 80s. Like, uh, well, it's not realistic that they would just be, you know, mindlessly altruistic. We have to make it real. We have to make it relatable. And so we, we decided that a character like Superman, um, you know, isn't realistic because well, he tr- he tries to help others, and when when people say they don't get Superman uh, because he could do anything he wants and he help and he chooses to help other people, I think that says a hell of a lot more about them than it does about Superman. Well, yeah, because you were saying earlier, well, what if what's what's going to happen if if everyone is reading superhero comics and things? And I mean, to to take an optimistic look, maybe. That sort of uh, selfless behavior won't seem like such an aberration uh, if everyone is raised on these stories. I mean, in an earlier episode, we were talking about Elon Musk and how he was sure. kind of inspired to try to save the world from reading Iron Man comics. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I think that I, I think it's just natural for humans to to engage in hero worship and to be obsessive and to think that they're right and everyone else is wrong. And just out of all the things that you can be obsessed about in this world stories about people who try to save the world. It seems like you could do a lot worse than that. Right. Well, the argument uh, I make in the Superman book, uh, Superman the Unauthorized Biography, is that the fact that Superman isn't relatable in the way that we prize so much today uh, is the whole point of him. He, he isn't relatable. He is an ideal. He is something that we strive to be like that's 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 the mode that we're supposed to to deal with him in um he 
is the best version of ourself, and um, he is a very flattering mirror. He's like, uh, you know, he 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 is us. If we could describe ourselves to other people, we would say, yeah, well, I'm really strong, but I always use that power with restraint, and I help the little guy. I mean, that's he's the guy that we want to be, um, and and that's why Batman. You know, you know the Batman. There's this whole thing about well. Superman is the day and Batman's the night and Superman is good and Batman is uh, Batman is the you know the he deals in the sewers and Batman's a lot closer to Superman uh than than he isn't because he again is dedicating himself to helping others it comes down to that it comes down to altruism and um I understand, and I write a lot in the book about how altruism, just blanket altruism, anodyne altruism, is not interesting because it's you know they if you're if if you come to a Silver Age comic with modern eyes and you see them doing doing good because I must defend righteousness, it doesn't it doesn't connect because it wasn't meant for you. It wasn't written for you. It was written for a kid. Written for a kid to kind of instill these notions, these very blanket notions of good versus evil. Uh, do the right thing because the right thing is the right thing to do. So once once we move into the sixties and seventies and eighties, and we say, okay, we have to make this realistic because no one believes in altruism. I mean, that's we lost something there. We lost something very important when we did that. Yeah. Well, I haven't read this book, but you quote uh, something. It's a comic called Batman Incorporated. Yeah. Uh, in which Bruce Wayne apparently says, starting today, we fight ideas with better ideas. The idea of crime with the idea of Batman. From today on, Batman will be everywhere it's dark. No place to hide. And I know that just seems very encouraging to me because obviously none of us can be Batman, but all of us can internalize the idea of Batman or uh, proliferate the idea of Batman. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, Morrison is many things. And when he can settle down and, and tell a story, uh, w- when he leaves the psilocybin mushrooms alone and can just <laughs> sit down and tell a story, he is so good at, um, at the, the, the meta meetings and the mythical stuff. But he's also, from point A to point B, he gets these characters. Uh, he, he gets what they're for. Uh, in a way that that I you know I really like the Snyder Run too. I'm not I don't want to diss the Snyder Run, but uh, it just came right after this crazy psilocybin weirdness that was Morrison saying every Batman story is true. Now the whole premise of the book that I wrote is that we have to be able to accept, we have to be able to internalize, we have to be able to allow all of these different versions of Batman uh, to be real because they all have the same motivation. The motivation is the important thing, not the badassery, not the fact that he has, you know, shark repellent, not none of that. That's all trappings. That's all trappings. The, the what what drives this character is the real deal. And uh, yeah, that's 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 ultimately what what Morrison understands on a fundamental and possibly um, psychotic level. <laughs> Okay, so so Glenn, unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time. So, just do you have any final words or anything else you want to mention? Uh, no, no. It's just that uh, you know, I'm I'm at GH uh, Weldon on Twitter, and every Friday I come out with a, a podcast with my pals at NPR called Pop Culture Happy Hour, which uh, is a lot of fun to do. All right, great. So yeah, so we've been speaking with Glenn Weldon, 
And this new book, again, it's called The Caped Crusade, Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture. So, Glenn, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, David. It was great. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Glenn Weldon for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Scott Noel, who writes, Geek's Guide is the best podcast out there. I drive a lot for work, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. Some of them are better than others, but Geek's Guide is by far the best. David is the best prepared interviewer of any I've listened to. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of the genre, truly engages his guests, and asks really terrific questions about them and their work. If you have any interest at all in science fiction or the craft and discipline of storytelling, Geek's Guide is a must-listen-to podcast, and it makes excessive drive time interesting and fun. So big thanks again to Scott Noel for that great review. Special thanks as well to Tracy Loudon, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for today's show, Casper Mattress. Remember that if you do decide to order a mattress, you should visit casper.com galaxy and use the promo code galaxy. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends... If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.